Let's return with Jesus to Jerusalem in John chapter 10. John chapter 10 this morning. Jerusalem in Jesus' day had been under a state of political subjugation for some 650 years. In fact, much of Israel, including Galilee in the north, had been under political subjugation for some 750 years. To put that into perspective, the United States began with 13 colonies just under 250 years ago. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian armies swept through the northern ten tribes of Israel. They quickly deported their inhabitants into captivity. A century later, Judah in the south suffered the same fate when the Babylonians and then the Persians overran them. And even when some Jews returned from exile, their land officially remained under Persian domination and taxation. In the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great, the king of Macedon, conducted a 10-year military campaign. He gobbled up Asia Minor, Northeast Africa, and the old Persian Empire. By the age of 30, Alexander had created an empire stretching from Greece all the way over to India. This, of course, included the nation of Israel. While Alexander's empire was short-lived, the Hellenistic culture that he introduced persisted for centuries. Three centuries after his death, our New Testament was written not in Hebrew, but in Greek. When Alexander died at the age of 32, his empire was divided into several states. Most of Israel was partitioned into what became known as the Seleucid Empire. It was founded by Alexander's general, Seleucus I. The remainder, including much of Judea down the south and Jerusalem, was annexed by the Ptolemaic Empire, which was centered in Egypt. But then both the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empires eventually gave way to the Roman Empire. In 63 B.C., the Roman general Pompey marched into Israel, conquered Jerusalem, and defiled the temple by entering the Holy of Holies. He massacred some 12,000 Jews on the Temple Mount. And in Jesus' day, Jerusalem remained under Roman control. Well, you can imagine the Jews longed for the day when all these Israel invaders would finally be driven permanently from their land. And they believed that a Messiah would come. In fact, a Christ would arise within Israel and restore her fortunes. He would reestablish the glories of the Davidic and the Solomonic kingdom. And to that end, the Jews celebrated a feast of dedication, looking for the coming Messiah. And that feast occurred in winter, and it's mentioned in our text, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, if you recall, from chapters 7 through 9, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. This was late September, early October. During that feast, Jesus made several dramatic claims about his true identity. 
Then suddenly he opened the eyes of a man born blind. This is highly significant because Isaiah tells us that at the age of Yahweh, the Messianic age, blind eyes will be open. Now, two and a half or three months have passed, and Jesus returns to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. It's probably December. And Jesus will be crucified the following spring. Now, the Feast of Dedication was actually dissimilar to previous feasts in that it was not prescribed by the Mosaic Law. Actually, it was a relatively recent institution in Judaism. In 167 B.C., this is a century before the Roman invasion, the Syrian Seleucid king, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, invaded Jerusalem. He defiled the temple. He set up a pagan altar in the sanctuary. And rumors circulated that he actually sacrificed a pig on the altar. Under his tyrannical rule, possessing Hebrew scriptures was considered a capital offense. And during these dark days, many Jews resorted to guerrilla warfare. They would launch surprise attacks on the Seleucids before retreating into the safety of the hills. If you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you know that up along the northwest shore of Galilee, there are these tall mountains. They're honeycombed with caves. These were strategic locations for the Jewish patriots. And the descendants of these guerrilla fighters in the time of Jesus were known as the Zealots. And one of them actually became an apostle. Now eventually, under the leadership of a man named Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer, these guerrilla warriors succeeded in toppling temporarily the Seleucid, the Syrian monarch. For a time, they recaptured the temple and they restored Yahweh worship. And for a brief time in the second century, the Maccabean, or the Hasmonean, same thing, the Hasmonean dynasty made Judea in the south a free state and began to expand her boundaries. It's hard for us to really appreciate this because we're so immersed in the Old Testament, but in the time of, Je- in the time of Jesus, actually, Judas Maccabeus was nearly as important as King David. He was a, a recent hero in their history. And for the Jews, he was a Messiah. He was a Christ. He was an anointed ruler and liberator of his people. Now, the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, and the Greek word Christ refer to the same person. Those terms refer to someone who has been anointed as king. He said, oil poured over his head, he is a king. Under the Maccabeans, the temple was rededicated on 25 Kislev. This is a month in the Jewish calendar, and of course, they followed the lunar calendar. The time is roughly again December. And for some eight days, the Jews celebrated a liberation of the sanctuary, and they ordained a nice big feast. And to commemorate this liberation, they decided that they would make it an annual feast. Let's just keep doing this year after year after year. And it became known, of course, as the Feast of Dedication. 
Today, Jews refer to that as Hanukkah or Hanukkah. They celebrate that roughly around Christmas time. Now, just as an aside, I think it's very interesting that Jesus came to Jerusalem to observe a feast of dedication that was not required by the Mosaic law. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, of course, does not endorse Jewish false religion. But at the same time, Jesus respected his Jewish culture, their customs. He respected his heritage. You recall that Paul, in Romans 9, does the very same thing. Paul loved his people. Paul observed Jewish feasts and customs and ceremonies, even though they were no longer required by the Mosaic Law. I think Christians can very easily slip into a kind of cultural iconoclasm that says, well, if if it's not in the gospel, then we just reject it all. Well, actually, there is a place for culture. There is a place for appreciating the culture you grew up in. Both Jesus and Paul maintain cultural traditions that were not specified in the Mosaic Law. I find that very intriguing, but that's beside the point. Now, Jesus' coming to the Feast of Dedication would have raised very important questions about his identity. Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? The Jews were indeed looking for another Judas Maccabeus. They were looking for someone to come and permanently deliver their nation from Gentile oppressors. And there is a little clue in our text that tips you off that Jesus did indeed arouse suspicions. That clue is found in verse 23. Well, in Jerusalem, Jesus, notice where he is, was walking in the temple, specifically in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, the colonnade of Solomon, also called Solomon's Porch, had extremely important messianic symbolism. The colonnade colonnade consisted of a whole forest, if you will, of these pillars, these great big pillars that ran the length of one side of that temple mount. They supported a roofed open-air terrace on the east side of the temple. And the Jews believed in the first century, and archaeological evidence supports their belief, that sections of the temple in that area were originally built by Solomon with materials gathered by David. Consequently, this was a highly revered and symbolic section of the temple. If you've ever toured a historical reconstruction of a famous site, and you have the guy that's showing you around, and all of a sudden she says, well, this, this part is part of the original building right here, right? It's like, oh, wow, this is original. You get the sense of nostalgia. That's what's going on here. This is really, really important because it connects us to David and to Solomon back there. So in John 10, we find Jesus. He comes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, a feast celebrating the political aspirations of the Jews, looking for their Christ. And Jesus locates himself in a section of the temple associated with Israel's wisest and wealthiest king, King Solomon. So why is he here, and what does this mean? And frankly, the symbolism doesn't end there. The eastern side of the temple where Solomon's colonnade was 
was also strongly associated with Yahweh's coming for his people. Just a few months later, Jesus is going to mount a donkey and he will approach Jerusalem from this same direction. He will plod his way right up towards Solomon's colonnade. And Jesus' route will bring him in from the east, from Bethany to Bethphage, up to the Mount of Olives, and from there down into the valley and up into the city. There's an ancient road into Jerusalem that just comes up right along the shoulder of the Mount of Olives and it peers over the Kidron. You have a really, really impressive view of the city down in the valley and up into the city. This was the approach that Jesus would later take. And this was all very deliberate. In the Old Testament, the Lord, Yahweh, is frequently described as coming to Jerusalem from the east. Zechariah, the same prophet who predicted Jesus' donkey ride, wrote this, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem and you've stood there where Solomon's colonnade stood, you, just, you look across the valley and there's the Mount of Olives. It's right there in the east. You can't miss it. Well, that's the direction from which Yahweh is going to come. That's the direction which, from which your deliverance is going to come. He'll come from the east. Ezekiel also has a vision of Yahweh coming from the east. Listen to these words. Ezekiel 43 and verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. Well, Ezekiel continues, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. My wife's brother lives out on the coast of North Carolina. And when we were there for a visit, I loved to go out for a run along the beach. Anyone like running on the beach? I love running on the beach, right? And if I wake up early enough, I can see the sun just suddenly breaking right across the horizon. I love that scene where the sunlight just comes shining and shimmering right across the waves that are just lapping up there against the shore. Well, that's actually the image the Jews have in their mind when they think about God, Yahweh, shining on them like fire on the horizon. He will come. He will come as a consuming fire. He will destroy their oppressors, and he will liberate his people. And how will he come? And the answer is, he will send his Messiah. Christ will come. A great Messiah will finally arise and and chase off those invaders and establish the fortunes of Israel. He, in fact, will bring in an everlasting kingdom. That's what they're looking for. But now there's this strange prophet out of Galilee named Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, that is a completely unimportant place. But he has just opened the eyes of a man born blind. That was a messianic miracle reserved for the entire Old Testament exclusively for the performance of deity. We saw that in John 9. So all of that background now should inform your understanding of verse 24. I spent all that time on that so you'd really just appreciate what's happening in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Everything funnels down to a single term. Christ. Are you the Christ? He opens blind eyes. He suddenly reappears for the Feast of Dedication. He stands there on Solomon's colonnade looking out over the east. Well, are you the Christ? Make it plain already. Now, let's be clear. The Jews were antagonistic toward Jesus' ministry. They've questioned his true identity all the way through John's gospel. In fact, they've already sought to arrest him and to murder him. So this is not a friendly overture to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. That's actually not what's going on here. It's more of a trap to further their hostile agenda against Jesus. Now, it is true that they were looking for another Judas Maccabeus. And they had hoped that now that the temple was stood there in all of its glory, that that Messiah might come very soon. But they're not convinced that Jesus is that person. No way. He can't be the Christ. Well... It is true that sometimes Christians mistakenly say that Jews were not looking for Christ in the first century, and that's why they missed him. I've heard that from time to time, but that's actually not true. The Jews were indeed looking for their Christ. The confusion is, is this the right guy? Could he possibly be the Christ? I mean, the whole point of the Feast of Dedication is they're looking for the Christ, and he shows up. And now there's incredible angst. Is he the Christ, yes or no? Now, again, what they wanted was an excuse to finally get rid of Jesus Christ. And we know that because of verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they're they're not truly looking for the real Christ. So given this hostility, how do you think Jesus is going to answer the question, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Don't read ahead. All right? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, will he plainly reveal his identity to the Jews? All right? Don't read ahead quite yet. Let me give you some more context. Again, we are three months away from Jesus' crucifixion. And did you know that not once in public discourse with the Jews has Jesus ever directly identified himself as Jesus Christ? He's actually never called himself Christ. Now, in a private conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus revealed his identity as the Messiah. But again, that was a private conversation. Alone with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus questioned them as to his true identity, and Peter confessed, Thou art the Christ. But again, this was alone with his disciples. Jesus has yet to explicitly call himself the Christ. In fact, let's just think our way through the Gospels very quickly. We did this a couple years ago on an Easter Sunday. I think it'll be helpful very quickly to sort of summarize what we discovered. Matthew's Gospel begins with the line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew goes on to say, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But aside from these two introductory references which Matthew penned 30 years later after the fact, after Jesus died and resurrected, 
Matthew never again places the two words Jesus Christ next to each other. People do not go through Matthew's gospel calling him Jesus Christ. Listen to Mark 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's the only time in Mark's gospel where you see the words Jesus Christ come together like that. The gospel of Luke, would you believe this? Never refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, the term Christ shows up often in the Gospels, as it does right here in chapter 10. But let me give you two facts about the occurrences of that term. First of all, Christ is often preceded by the definite article, the, the Christ. Herod asked the wise men where the Christ should be born. John the Baptist heard from prison about the deeds of the Christ. And we see it right here in verse 24. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Christ refers to the office, the office of a king. In the Gospels, it's not yet a title of Jesus. It's a title that belongs to the king, the rightful king. So when the Jews ask, are you the Christ, they're asking something like, well, are you the rightful king? Are you the Messiah? But they're not going around calling him Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Nobody's doing that yet. Secondly, the discussion concerning the Christ intensifies enormously during Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. It actually just burns right through the whole Passover week. Let me just give you some examples. On the Temple Mount, Jesus said to the Pharisees, this is the final week, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus warned, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. On trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus debated his identity. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. On trial again, Jesus was berated by the high priest. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Mocking Jesus, Roman soldiers taunted, prophesied to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Bringing Jesus before Pilate, the Jewish leaders exclaimed, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate, seeking to exonerate himself, queried the crowds, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Reviling Jesus on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes exclaimed, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And one of the two criminals, crucified with Jesus in desperation, cried out, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Well, is Jesus the Christ? That question just intensifies to a crescendo during his final week in Jerusalem. And that criminal's question just hovers over the darkest hour in all of human history. Was he the Christ? Is he the Christ? If so, why don't you save us, says the criminal. Well, given all that, is Jesus, Jesus Christ, 
How will he answer the question back in John 10 and verse 24? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Don't look at the answer yet. All right? Did you know that on only one occasion does Jesus ever plainly refer to himself as Jesus Christ? Only once. Now, by the way, after the resurrection, he's called Jesus Christ hundreds of times. But only once does Jesus actually refer to himself as Jesus Christ. And it's not here in John 10. Let's turn ahead momentarily to John chapter 17. John 17. Are you the Christ? In John 17, the Feast of Dedication is passed. Jesus will return to Jerusalem for a final Passover. In John 17, we learn that Jesus is in the upper room. Just before he dies, he is in a private conversation with his disciples once again. And Jesus will pray to the Father. And immediately, when this prayer is done, he is going to journey the dark Gethsemane. He has already dispatched Judas Iscariot to execute a diabolical scheme on his life. So this, this is really, this is just, just before everything is set in motion that's going to land him on the cross, Jesus prays, and look at what he says in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority. That's what a king needs, right? Authority. Authority over what? Over all flesh. To do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and who? And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You're giving him all authority, Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the only reference to Jesus directly referring to himself as Jesus Christ immediately before his death. But strangely, he refers to his authority over all flesh to grant eternal life. Now hold on to that and let's go back to John 10. Given all that background, can you actually interpret Jesus' response to the Jews at the Feast of Dedication when they ask in verse 24, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, look at his response, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. My friends, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? If Jesus never calls himself Jesus Christ until the upper room, which is three months in the future... And he says it in private. What does this mean? I told you, and you do not believe. Actually, can you interpret that? Is that a contradiction? Actually, the answer is really quite simple. So simple, in fact, that you might read right over it if you're not careful. And the answer is right there in the rest of the verse. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus demonstrated his identity as the Christ by his works. That's what he's been telling them. Look at my works. 
His works were a declaration of his identity as the Christ. Now, anyone can claim to be the Christ, but do they open the eyes of the blind? Jesus warned that many would come and they would claim to be the Christ. And Jesus said, beware of them, they are false teachers. Actually, it's their works that matter. Now, when Jesus refers to his works, I think he's probably referring not just to his miracles, but also to his preaching, his preaching labors. And I say that because of verse 25. When Jesus says in verse 25, I told you, I told you and you do not believe, he's saying something like, well, if you've been listening to my preaching all along, you should know who I am. In other words, Jesus has not been going around explicitly calling himself Christ or Christ Jesus. Anyone can claim to be the Christ. However, if you will think about his miracles and you will listen to his preaching, you can't miss it. He's the Christ. But you're probably still asking, well, why doesn't Jesus just come right out and explicitly claim to be the Christ? Why not just say it? Well, part of the answer, I think, is the hostility that he knows he's facing with these Jews. But I think there's more to it than that. The Jews need to undergo a thorough reorientation, a complete rethinking about what that term even means. What does the term Christ mean? The Jews were looking for another Judas Maccabeus. They were looking for a military hero They were looking for someone to finally chase off the Romans and all the invaders who just keep trampling through their land. That's the kind of Christ we want. But Jesus says, okay, look at my works and listen to my preaching. I am going to totally redefine the term Christ. And Jesus knows that the true Christ will use his authority in an entirely different way. He is not about to stage a guerrilla warfare campaign, even if he did call Simon Zealot to be one of his disciples. You're thinking incorrectly if you think that I'm going to start a campaign and topple the Romans. Again, listen to what Jesus said in John 17. This is really the key. When he finally calls himself Jesus Christ, everything comes together. You have given him authority Authority over what? All flesh. To do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus is not interested in becoming merely a political ruler who wants to chase off the Romans and go the way of all the kings of the earth. That's not his agenda at all. He is not interested in bringing a 700-year Jewish captivity to an end. He is interested in his authority as the Christ being used to resurrect people from the grave and to grant them eternal life. That's what he means by the term Christ. And that's precisely what Jesus has been saying and been confirming by his miracles. Verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He came to totally redefine and reorient their expectations about the Messiah. But the Jews, for their part, are just too obstinate to truly understand. So the question is, why don't they get it? Why can't they see it? 
Well, the answer comes in verses 26 through 28. But you do not believe. Well, why not? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. That's what he said in John 17. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So clearly here, as later in John 17, Jesus is talking about bringing in eternal life. Not temporary relief from Roman enslavement. But do the Jews understand? His answer is blunt. They don't understand. Well, why not? Because they are not his sheep. And at this point, Jesus picks up on a theme that was developed earlier in the chapter. If you recall from last week, Jesus used a couple metaphors, that of the good shepherd and that of the door. And Jesus said, look, I am the shepherd and I go into this pen and I call out my sheep and they know my voice. They will not follow a stranger. They will not follow a false Christ. They know my voice. But here the message is clear. Some will hear the words of Jesus and will follow and others will not. The Messiah is going to come to Israel and he's going to call out his sheep. Doesn't mean he's going to liberate all of Israel. That's not going to happen. It's going to collapse in 70 AD. But I'm going to come and I'm going to call out my sheep. They know my voice. They understand my mission. And he is on a mission to grant them eternal liberation. Now, at this point, I realize that some of you may feel a little anxiety. So I want to conclude this morning, I'm not going to finish out the chapter, but I want to conclude by trying to help you out with that anxiety. I know exactly the anxiety you're experiencing right now. It's right there in verses 26 through 28. And you are worried that you might not be a true sheep. Right? Am I a true sheep, you ask? Do I hear his voice? Jesus says in verse 26, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. And you're asking right now, am I elect? Which flock do I belong to? I mean, I really want to belong to Jesus, but I don't know. Now, next week, again, I'll come and finish out this chapter, but I really want to make sure that we're not leaving anybody just stumbling into disbelief. All right? How would you know that you're a true sheep and that you have truly embraced Jesus as the Christ? Well, would you look at the outcome of this dialogue, verse 31? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Friend, is that your reaction to Jesus? If Jesus were here today and he claimed to be the Christ, would you pick up stones and attempt to murder him? Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Friends, is that your reaction to Jesus? Do you believe he is blaspheming when he makes himself out to be God? Would you stone him? Right? I'm talking to believers. I don't think that's your response. Now, if that is your response, you're not a believer. All right, but I'm talking to those of you who just really, really struggle with this matter of assurance. I have talked with 
countless doubting believers through the years. It is an affliction that particularly seems to trouble college students as they're making that transition into adulthood. And they wonder whether they've ever heard the voice of Jesus and whether they are his true sheep. But would you believe I've never once had a student say that he or she is trying to decide between stoning Jesus and accepting Jesus? That's actually never happened. They're trying to figure out, how do I really know I believe in Jesus? They're not trying to figure out how to stone him at all. I've never once had a student say he or she was trying to decide whether Jesus was God or a blasphemer. Friends, that's the situation Jesus is dealing with here in Jerusalem. It wasn't merely the Jews had no interest in embracing Jesus. It was that it went well beyond that. The Jews believed Jesus is a blasphemer. He is the devil, as we saw last week. He is worthy of a death by stoning. Now, it is true that doubts can arise in the hearts of believers. And it is true that significant theological questions can keep you awake at night. Happens to a lot of believers. And it is true that Jesus distinguishes between his sheep and those who are not his sheep. Sincere believers actually can have considerable doubt. But do they really want to stone him as a blasphemer? If not, well then would you just recognize that Jesus is actually not trying to discourage you at all? Would you observe that Jesus emphasizes not your ability to believe, but the power of your God to protect And by God, Jesus identifies himself with the Father as jointly protecting the sheep. Look at verses 28 and 29 and 30. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's where he puts the emphasis. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. Again, that's where he puts the emphasis. I and the Father are one. Friends, both Jesus and the Father are united in their resolve to secure and to protect you. Jesus' emphasis is on his power to preserve, his power to protect his own. So friends, as I mentioned just two weeks ago, your eternal salvation is not based on your own merit or your own ability to save yourself. It is rooted in the power of God. Again, as I mentioned two weeks ago, keep God as the object of your faith. Confess Jesus is the Christ. Make him the object of your faith. When you put your faith in Jesus as the Christ, then by all means, put your faith in Christ. And what I mean by that is don't put your faith in your faith. Don't put your faith in your faith. Remember the father in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, here's a guy who clearly doesn't have a lot of faith in his faith. He's got faith in Jesus, so you can heal my son. And Jesus healed his son. Friends, don't put your faith in your emotions as if you're saved because you can make yourself feel really, really badly about your sins. Friends, if your salvation depends on your ability to feel sufficient guilt for your sins, then you're lost, and we're all lost. Because none of us will ever feel sufficient guilt for our sins. 
So don't, don't put your faith in your guilt. Don't put your faith in your emotions. Don't put your faith in the volume of tears that we can shed. Now, it, 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 it's perfectly appropriate to shed tears. But it's not like, oh, I cried so much, therefore I'm a believer. Friends, if salvation depends on your skill to utter a persuasive, theologically astute prayer, then we're lost. Because no one can pray a prayer that's good enough. No amount of persuasive words can atone for your sins. You are not going to talk God out of judgment. You need a substitute. That's what you need. So make Jesus Christ the object of your faith. Does that all make sense? Don't put your faith in your faith. And don't put your faith in your guilt. And don't put your faith in your tears. And don't put your faith in your emotions. And don't even put your faith in your prayer as if you said the right formula. Either make Jesus Christ the object of your faith or pick up stones to hurl at him as a blasphemer. And I say all of that to really, really encourage you. None of that is to discourage you. It has been a full two weeks since I've preached on doubt. And for some of you, that's plenty of time to start doubting again, isn't it? You don't need two weeks. You don't need two days. You don't need two hours. You need like two minutes, right? I, I, I know. I know that happens. So, so how are we doing? I just want to reiterate once again, you know, your faith is not in your faith. I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> well, who are you believing? Make Jesus Christ the object of your faith. Verse 28, here's what he says to you. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You, you better put your faith in that man. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do gladly confess him as Christ. We do gladly confess him as Messiah. And we do gladly accept the terms of his Messiahship. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you for the tomb. We thank you for his authority to grant eternal life. And we just pray, Lord, that as we See these believers come for baptism, that our faith in Christ would be renewed, and that he would indeed be the object of our faith. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.